0: Creatures don't love crypto creatures, but information to an
1: interview with the cryptid hunter in this documentary. We're going to showcase a never before seen interview with an extraordinary man, one who explored the most inhospitable tracts of wilderness on the planet, risking his very life in an effort to uncover the shocking truth behind nature's most carefully guarded secrets. Without further ado. Here is an interview with a cryptid hunter. Enjoy. Throughout the course of his research, the author of this book came across a string of references to a mysterious adventurer named Frank Graves. This gentleman was a protege of Ivan T. Sanderson, one of the founding fathers of an unorthodox discipline known as cryptozoology. More than 50 years ago, he made a historic expedition to a mysterious valley in northern Canada, famous for its gruesome myths and legends. He is credited with the discovery of two different cryptids, or hidden animals, yet unknown to the civilized world. And he has an intriguing connection to an elusive photograph for which cryptozoologists have hunted for decades. Mm -hmm. In a few short years, he made a huge splash in the cryptozoological community, earning himself a place in books and magazines. Then, as suddenly as he appeared, he vanished without a trace. Mm -hmm. Some men have searched for him in vain. Others dismissed him as a myth. For years, the fate of Frank Graves remained a mystery. Until Mm -hmm. now. Frank Graves' story begins in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in the early 1960s. Back then, he worked as a heavy-duty mechanic for a truck manufacturing company. In 1965, his comfortable 8-4 routine changed forever with his introduction to a fascinating character named Ivan T. Sanderson. Ivan Sanderson was an eccentric Scottish biologist and adventurer. Educated in zoology, geology, and botany in England, France, and Switzerland, he began his academic career leading specimen-collecting expeditions all over the world on behalf of various British-learned societies. In 1932, during one such expedition in the jungles of Cameroon, he and his hunting partner were attacked by a giant bat, which the locals fearfully referred to as Tiao. This incident sparked Sanderson's lifelong interest in animals yet unknown to science, creatures begetting the field of study, which he coined cryptozoology. During World War II, Sanderson worked as a counterintelligence operative for both the British and American navies. After the war, he left his old life behind and immigrated to America, where he enjoyed a long career in radio and television, educating and entertaining his audience in his capacity as a naturalist. Sanderson's interest in unexplained phenomena was rekindled in the 1950s, when UFO and monster sightings became more frequent in the United States and Canada. Unlike many of his academic contemporaries, Sanderson refused to dismiss these stories out of hand, risking his professional reputation in order to give them the attention which he believed they deserved. By the late 1950s, he was writing essays on UFOs, and in 1961, he wrote the first book to seriously address the question of whether Harry Wildman truly roamed the wilderness of North America. In his book, Sanderson referenced a Wildman tradition from a mysterious region in northwestern Canada, the watershed of the South Nahanni River. This remote territory nestled in the heart of the Mackenzie Mountains was associated with strange tales of lost tribes, lost gold, and a tropical enclave in the subarctic wilderness. A string of mysterious decapitations which took place there in the early 1900s resulted in the area acquiring a gruesome nickname, the Headless Valley. Oh,
0: well, I
1: guess you
2: have to go back to uh when I met Ivan Sanderson, I worked for Chilton Publishing Company. Chilton published um, a lot of Ivan's books. And I believe they published that one called uh, Abominable Snowman, Legend Come to Life. I had talked to a, a couple friends down there and said I was interested in this uh, Abominable Snowman thing. And a friend of mine said, well, you, the guy that wrote this, he said his name is Sanderson. I said, yes, yeah. well, he comes down to um, uh, my book division. So they said the next time Go to work every day to jumping off into something that was really, in many ways, extremely uh, dangerous. It was extremely
1: dangerous. The group to which Ivan Sanderson introduced Frank Graves was a team of American University students who hoped to resurrect the dying art of old-fashioned discovery expeditions. These young men called themselves the American Expeditionary Society, or AES. In the summer of 1965, Frank Graves and the AES boys equipped themselves at Minnesota State University before heading north to Canada, bound for the Headless Valley.
2: My school bus and we took all the seats out of it and we had a guy come over we painted the bus red, white, and blue and um, red on the top white in the center and blue on the bottom and we had a guy come over and he professionally wrote American Expeditionary Society on the side of it we all The first time I saw the uh, Mackenzie River, I didn't pay much attention to it until George looked, he was looking at it like fixed and he says, look at the current on this river and it was so wide, it was, you couldn't see the other side, but the current was like 18 miles an hour and it, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't even think about it until he brought it to my attention, look how fast that current is and he said, mm-hmm. the South Nahanni is going to be a lot faster than that. Two of the people on the trip, George Boyum and Wayne Ingbritson, they were uh, farm people and they were very tough outdoor people. But, uh,
0: oh, uh Ella
2: Susan, uh, Mike Ella Susan, uh, Bruce Shore and myself, we were kind of like city people. You know, we were all kind of new to things like that. We had the Indians build us a 30 foot, uh, very well built, beautiful flat bottom boat, but it was too small.
1: said to haunt the region. In doing so, he came across stories of an entirely different sort of creatures known to the natives as the Nukluk.
0: I think i heard of this place um on a different um, podcast and it was a uh, bigfoot podcast and um he and his wife um took and, uh, people up to like, see the bigfoot to where they trust
2: you and they'll talk
0: to you <laughs> that's when they
2: they talk to me Thank about you these things. when i got really friendly with the indian
1: It's not that long this particular I'm specimen 60. was said to be
3: rather short in stature, and to be quite strong with a beard, That's and so usually wearing me. simple clothing. That's the name great. given this creature was Nuckluck, or Man of the Bush, or as told to me by one old man,
1: Bushman. The first Nuckluck sighting took place in April 1964 in the woods near Fort Lyard, 64. according to Graves.
3: Amorite named John Baptist came upon cool, a man-shaped though. creature who was rather strong and sported a long dark beard he wasn't wearing any type of clothing and carried no weapons he was said to be rather shy For as the band of trapping Amorites advanced upon him in a friendly manner he uttered a low growl and fled
1: the second sighting took place at Nahani Butte in May 1964 mm. One night at dusk, while weaving a birch bark basket, a slavey woman
3: was made aware of a presence outside of her cabin. When she looked out the door, she saw nothing. But a little later, she looked up at the window and there saw a face. This face was identical in every respect to the one seen earlier that month.
1: The woman and her two children went outside to look for the little creature. But by that time, it had retreated into the bush.
3: Now, we go to my favorite, really day. This was told to me by a boy of about 14, I whom about I knew them. only as Jerry. He was recommended to me for my purpose by the school teacher there. This little boy saw a creature identical to the previous mentioned one, except for a few exterior differences. This sighting is said to have occurred last fall right outside of Fort Simpson. One evening at about 9 p.m., the little fellow's dog began to bark. This event is not unusual, for his home is located right at the edge of the city dump, and a dog can pick up the scent of many different night scavengers during the passing of one night, especially in that country. On this night, however, the boy and his father went out to the dog to find out what was the matter. When they got out to the dog, it was quiet and standing most still. At first, they detected nothing of unusual interest, but when the father turned on a flashlight for a little extra investigative work, they heard a slight noise. As they turned the light in the direction of this sound, they were surprised to see a rather small, dark creature. This creature is said to have remained where he stood for several minutes. At about that time, the dog again began to bark. With that, the creature departed at speed. He was seen by several bystanders who gave slight chase, but upon their entrance into the picture, the creature quickly headed for the bush. He was not pursued. And we stayed there for a week or
2: two, and then we went to uh, the Hot Springs.
1: The Krause Hot Springs lie on the South Nahani, about 60 kilometers upriver from Nahani Butte back in the early 1900s they helped inspire a legend of a tropical valley hidden away somewhere in the canadian subarctic in order to get there the american expeditionary society had to pass through an obstacle known as the splits a deadly labyrinth of islands and long jams that had claimed the lives of many canoeists
2: Gus Krause and his wife Mary lived there. Gus the Krause picture. at the time was about 77. <laughs> I he was that myself now. But he, he did things like he was in his uh, 20s. He was a very, very tough outdoor guy, mm-hmm. cut down big trees, drove them all through the the, the bush. Mm-hmm. Gus was the kind of guy, if he would light his pipe, he would reach into the fire and pick up hot coals in his fingers and, and light his pipe. He was very, very nice guy, very nice guy to talk to. His wife was an Indian woman named Mary, kind of a short woman, wore um, glasses. Actually, Mary had shot Gus at the, uh, uh, when they they all lived at uh, uh, the Honey Butte. And before they moved up to the hot springs, it was in the winter time.
0: I saw a video,
2: a movie of this. When we were at the hot springs, they showed us a eight millimeter movie of something in the hot springs in the winter. But no matter what happens, the hot springs are always there and they would go back to the hot springs and go in the water, even though it was like uh, 30 below. Must have
0: been, uh... And at
2: some point, there was a problem between Gus and Mary and Mary shot Gus in the head with a rifle, oh a 22 rifle. And the bullet went behind, it hit him right behind the ear and it went around his head and came out the other side. but
0: uh... only a twenty
2: You'd have to go out at night, and you'd have to sit someplace very quietly along the river, and then the wolves would come out and come down to the river to drink. You would never see them, ever, but they were all around you. I, uh, there was an experience where I was out with, uh, Mickey and I used to, used to go on walks, and we would, uh, we went off one day, and he was always afraid of wolves. walking.
1: sanderson
3: an enormous white thing that i at first thought must be a polar bear sort of wandered out of the trees it wasn't a bear it looked more like a gigantic dog it stood straight up on rather long legs more like a dog or a wolf i had seen plenty of wolves and some of them are enormous enough up there but this this thing was 20 times the size of any wolf i had ever heard of by a sort of reflex action I fired at it, and it was less than 20 paces away, and only partly screened by little bushes. I hit it with two barrels of ball shot. It didn't even jump. It turned away from me and just walked back into the forest. I reloaded and fired again, and I know I hit it in the rear, but it just kept on walking.
1: Grave's story reminded Sanderson of another tale that a friend had told him years ago. While prospecting in Alaska in the 1950s, this friend had come across huge, solitary, white wolves deep in the Arctic wilderness. After hearing Graves' story, Sanderson suspected that these colossal canines might constitute another species of animal entirely. Oh, His theory prompted him to write an article, which was published posthumously in the October 1974 issue of the magazine, Pursuit. In this piece, Sanderson remarked that the enormous, wide-headed dog-like creature that Graves encountered in the Nahani Valley evoked a particular species of ancient canine believed to have gone extinct several million years ago. Perhaps, Sanderson surmised, descendants of this ancient animal still survived in remote corners of the Arctic. Sanderson dubbed this hypothetical creature the Wahila, and thus a new variety of cryptid was born.
2: Well, there's the other theory that Ivan talked to me about was he said that um, he thought it was what they call a ghost wolf, meaning that it is really there. I mean, there, there's a lot of uh, room for this. You know what? I, Ivan had uh, he wrote a lot of books about the um, a Bermuda Triangle and um, everything that pertains to that. You know, like uh, time differentials and the fourth dimensional, and he he thought. Because the, uh, the, as I say, I did not want to shoot this this wolf. I didn't want to shoot anything. I When it became apparent that it was, it could have hurt us, I shot at it. And
0: um, everything around
2: it, it was uh, affected by the shot. And it wasn't. And then it, that's when it turned and it ran into the, it ran off the path to the right, up, up into the bush. And then this bush is very.
0: Forest is moss about a foot thick. It's a
2: foot thick. It's like walking on a sponge everywhere you go. Once you get off the um, game trails, you're walking in these uh, sponges.
1: sanderson's article there have been several ideas put forth as to the identity of the strange animal some have drawn parallels between it and another mysterious canine from the great plains others have attempted to connect it with a monster of inuit myth frank graves has his own thoughts regarding the nature of the wahila which he shared for the first time in this interview
0: They used to be. They used to be really you to cool like that. that. The, the, no. the
2: underlying reason for the whole trip was and to yeah. investigate reports of Sasquatch Oma. In that area, there's what they call the Sasquatch is, is kind of a name that's bandied around up there, but they up there, they refer to them as Oma, which is the same as Sasquatch.
0: They're all, know, they're all basically The one that Uh, was found in Russia. Oma is
2: basically the same uh, type of a creature as um, uh, Sasquatch. And uh, actually,
0: uh, there's another variety.
2: They're called um, hillside gougers.
1: particular outing, he and his companion made a fascinating discovery which Graves related in a letter to Ivan Sanderson.
3: We made several successful forays upside valleys and canyons during the days while we moved upriver and we got our food quite fast. But then one misty day we set off up a canyon that the Indian said he did not know personally but which was not lucky. And in truth we did not spot a living thing in three hours. So we started back to the river. Then suddenly, my pal stopped and pointed at the soft, wet ground in a little clearing and actually gave one of those grunts that movie makers love to have their red Indians make. He was a bit rattled. So was I. For there, most clearly marked in the mud, were three footprints of what appeared to be a barefoot man who would have had to take a shoe with an internal measurement of at least 16 inches
0: my friend fire. gave
3: this thing a name but I never really did catch up with that That's as we went fire. down to the valley at no dog trot I can tell you there's a
2: thing in Canada if you have your picture taken riding on a moose you get uh, $10,000 from some uh, organization and we almost did it when we, we, we left the hot springs and we were about to enter the first canyon and a moose was swimming across the river We went over to it and this is the honest God truth now, I was gonna jump off onto the moose and try and ride on it. And they were gonna make a movie of it. I was afraid that if we jumped
1: springs, Sounds the strange. South Nahanni runs through what is known as the First you can hear Canyon, the
0: guy in the back. a channel of Snicker. white water flanked
1: by two towering limestone cliffs. It is here that the American Expeditionary Society encountered the first of the Nahanni's many rapids, for which the river is notorious.
2: There's two or three places on the South Nahanni, George's Riffle. riffle is the hardest place to navigate on the river mm-hmm. you know, have you know, the current coming down about 18 miles an hour but it runs into very narrow areas and it's very it's all white water mm-hmm. and you have to navigate up through that and uh, like a lot of white people water people rafting get killed there. boats flip over and yeah, uh, we, we we made it up like there the
0: first near, time went right through all that riffle near and then we got into the real trip We, we tipped on this once. It was really close to tipping. very scary. I didn't like it. I'm not into scary stuff, really. I wanted to jump out of a plane once, for real. Um, more for the head trip that it would be. That was our main camp, with
2: the Havos Valley. Do it. Valley for over a month. There was a cabin built there by the uh, uh, by the government, and it was just put there uh, for anybody who
0: would visit there could stay in the cabin. You know, some kind of shelter, and directly across from that was what they called the Prairie
2: Creek uh, Delta. And uh, the way it looked, uh, it was deceiving to look at. It looked like it was very close, but it was very far away. And these the trees that were that lined it sheer walls and they lined it all the way up to the top and down but the trees they looked like grass these trees were a hundred feet tall <laughs> and they look like they looked like little
0: Bug. Bugs.
2: <laughs>
1: Go cave. Much of Nahani country, especially the area surrounding the Headless Valley, is pockmarked with deep caves that lead into the rock. Legend has it that these caverns are haunted by some sort of sinister presence, from evil spirits to Neanderthals to hairy red-eyed giants. During his time in the Headless Valley, Frank Graves stumbled across one of these caves and made a shocking discovery inside.
0: It was probably when one
2: we of were those the Valley, We would take walks. Uh, George and I would, we'd go across the river, across the Mahani, and we'd put the boat up over there, and then we would go on a walk across the Prairie Creek, delta.
0: no pun intended i just have to um, update this one that doesn't take it only takes an hour and otherwise i'll lose the rest of it for the guys that listen to this channel so let me update this wow